0: And, again, I'm going to lower this for a minute, there we go. Uh, Not coincidentally, this week in talking with people and meeting with people, we've discussed and been asked questions about all those things, about marriage and divorce and singleness. And every time I was like, you know, that's what I'm preaching about this Sunday, So, it's interesting how the Lord works. But we're in Matthew 19. I know your bulletin says through verse 15, but yesterday I cut three verses off because it was getting way too long. So we're only going to go through verse 12 today. So I'll pick those up, hopefully next week. Um, So we're only going to go through verse 12. So if you would turn to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12... And please listen carefully, something I'm going to say several times today, because this is God's word. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, It is lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn about Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us grace once again in order to understand your hard teaching once again. Help us to hear and know that your way is good, and help us to hear and know that your way is gracious. Give us the desire to learn and apply these truths this morning. In Jesus' name we ask these things, amen. Amen. It is challenging in our day and age to talk about the Christian view of marriage and divorce. But because we claim to be Bible-believing Christians, uh, then we have to come to the Bible and hear what Jesus says and bow the knee to him. And sometimes that's harder than it sounds. Now, last September, there was an article in the New York Times covering a recent trend. And that trend is the increasing number of divorces involving people over the age of 50. As a person over the age of 50, it got my attention. And the article states, For the first time, more Americans 50 and older are divorced than widowed. And numbers are growing as baby boomers live longer. Sociologists call them gray divorcees. In 1960, only 2.8% of Americans older than 50 were divorced. By the census in the year 2000, 11.8% were divorced, And by 2011, according to the Census Bureau, the American Community Survey, 17.5% of Americans over 50 were divorced or separated. That's one out of five almost. Now, back in 1990, only 24 years ago, one in ten persons who were divorced was 50 and older. In the year 2011, 28% of people who got divorced that year were 50 and older. And researchers warn that this rising divorce rate among older Americans has serious implications that go well beyond the couples themselves. And like widowhood, divorce can contribute to massive social uh, effects on our society, Uh, particularly as people are getting divorced when they're older. It leads to economic strain. It forces some people into poverty. There's increased poor health, usually related uh, to being stressed and alone. And there's a larger burden placed on uh, children, particularly adult children, and giving shrinking family size, institutional support from government and other agencies, and yet still people divorce. Now, one of the reasons for this trend is so many baby boomers are in second and third marriages, making them statistically far more prone to divorce. However, far more striking to me in this article, the observations, they quote a professor, Stephanie Kuntz. She teaches family history at Evergreen State College in Washington State. And she reflected on this trend and is quoted as saying, Staying together until death do us part is a bigger challenge than it used to be. We expect so much more of marriage than we did in the past. And we have so many more options when a marriage doesn't live up to those expectations. With the kids gone, it seems more burdensome to stay in a bad relationship or even one that has grown stale. Now, a couple observations to make based on what Professor Kuntz has said. And the first observation I would make is this. The idea that marriage lasting until death is more difficult today than it's ever been is not likely to be true. After all, our text today that I just read gives a lie to that observation, I mean, look at the questions the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I mean, talk about non-restrictive, no-fault divorce. It seems that's what the Pharisees are advocating, at least some of them. So the idea that our age is somehow unique in this idea of easy divorce is clearly mistaken. It's never been easy to stay married till death do us part. Never. It's always been a challenge. It's always taken hard work. Another observation taken from this quote by Professor Kuntz is somehow marriages are governed by our expectations. And if the marriage doesn't meet those expectations, then it becomes burdensome or bad or stale, to use her language. And then it's better to divorce than remain married. Now, That way of thinking isn't new either. In fact, I think that's what's underlying the Pharisees' question here. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? But whether it's the first century form of the idea or the 21st century form of the idea, the underlying assumptions, the underlying false assumptions are that marriage should be escapable. And so the first false assumption is as that marriage was not intended to be permanent. And hence, we now have such terms as a starter marriage. When I grew up, we talked about starter homes. You bought a starter house. But now people talk about a starter marriage as if that excuses whatever happened. Of course, that leads to a second false assumption And that's there's such a thing as a good divorce, and that's a lie. I don't believe there's any such thing as a good divorce. And the lie of the good divorce is actually rooted in a deeper lie, our third false assumption. And it's the lie that's driving no-fault divorce in our day. It's the lie that's driving the homosexual agenda for gay marriage. And it's the idea that marriage is something that we create. It's simply the result of our own choices, so that marriage is just a new arrangement of like minded people, and if we put it together, we can take it apart. If that's true, then as the argument goes, it doesn't matter if it's a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or as I heard this week, a woman who married herself. Think about that for a moment. Or even a woman in France who last July married a bridge. True story. Jody Rose, an Australian woman, has taken her desire for the strong silent type (laughs) to a new extreme. (laughs) She married a bridge. She married a bridge in southern France After falling head over heels, quote, for the sensual 14th century stone structure. You can look it up. They even have wedding pictures. You can't make this stuff up. By the way, the name of the bridge is Le Pont du Diable, which means the bridge of the devil. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Now, regardless of the arrangement, we believe that marriage is a new personal arrangement that we create, we create out of our own choices and our own purposes. And central to what Jesus is saying here, central uh, to what Jesus is teaching us this morning, is this well known phrase that we get from verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But I think the Pharisees' primary purpose here isn't to discover Jesus' view on marriage and divorce. Not at all. I'm not even sure they care. See, their real purpose in questioning Jesus is to test him. And we see that beginning of verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So we have to ask why. What was the context? What was the purpose of testing? Starting again at verse 1. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now there's three questions in our text this morning two that are direct and one that's implied. But it all starts with this issue of being tested by the Pharisees. And the first question that comes up, found again, verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, underlying this question is an ongoing debate. And it's an internal debate among the Pharisees. It's over the meaning of an Old Testament text. That Old Testament text is an example of what we would call case law. If you were to read the book of Deuteronomy, you would find a number of these case laws. It's the application of the law given to answer a specific problem, a specific situation, a specific case. And in this instance, the specific case is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. But the key point comes in verse 1. And there it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And it goes on to present a situation where she marries a second man who then divorces her. And the question becomes, is she free to go back and remarry that first man? And to that Deuteronomy says, no, she may not. But as it plays out through Israel's history, by the time you get here to Matthew 19, the Pharisees are debating, what does the phrase some indecency mean? What are the grounds for divorce? What did Moses mean when he wrote that? And of course, there's two camps among the Pharisees. One camp, the more liberal group, thought that some indecency meant any indecency, not just sexual unfaithfulness. And therefore, any reason whatsoever, if she finds no favor in his eyes, is grounds for divorce. The other camp, the more conservative group, thought that some indecency meant simply and solely sexual unfaithfulness. And so the Pharisees are bringing this dispute to Jesus, not to get it resolved, but as the text tells us, to test him. It's not an innocent question. They're trying to see if Jesus will choose the liberal camp or the conservative camp. And if he lines up with one side or the other, what's the risk? Well, whichever side he chooses, he'll utterly alienate the other side. I don't think they really care what his answer is. They're just trying to knock his popularity down a bit. Because after all, verse 2 told us that large crowds were following him. So this is the first of many verbal tests they are going to be thrown at Jesus throughout the rest of Matthew. The Pharisees are going to come at him time and time again, trying to test him, trying to trap him, trying to trick him. But understand this, over and over again, Jesus sees right through their tests, their traps, and their tricks. And in this particular case, he recognizes that underlying this test question, is the fact that all of the Pharisees, both liberal and conservative, think that marriage is escapable and divorce is allowable. And so in his answer, we discover Jesus' view of marriage. Jesus' view of marriage, starting at verse 3. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's central to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that marriage is not an arrangement that we create. Marriage is not something that's based on our own expectations. It's not about what we do. But rather, when we get married, there's a divine work taking place, combining our actions and his purposes. And it's God who joins us together. He sticks us together. He glues us together. He solders us together in such a way that man should not break us apart. Why is it important to hear what Jesus is saying here? Why it is important to know that God is the one who puts us together in marriage? We need to hear that this is important. We need to know that this is central because God has intentions for marriage. God has a purpose for marriage, whether you acknowledge it or not. Whether you're a believer Or not, God still has a purpose for marriage because it's still a sign of God's promise. Just as the rainbow is a sign of God's promise not to destroy the world again, your marriage, any marriage, is a sign of God's promise to be united to His people in a way that is inseparable. It is to be a union of God and His people that is unbreakable, unending, undivorceable. That's what God's up to. Christ wants to be united with you in a relationship that's created by his death and is not breakable by your death. That's what marriage is about. And so if that's God's purpose when he joins us together, then we have to take Jesus' words here seriously. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God's purpose for marriage is is to show you what his marriage to you should look like. It's a marriage that is formed, a union that is formed by a love that will not let you go. No matter if you wander away from him for a time, no matter if you're unfaithful to him, no matter if you cheat on him with other gods, God loves you with a love that will not let you go. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord. That's first. Second, Jesus undercuts the view of the Pharisees by challenging them. Starting in verse 4, he says, Have you not read? It would be a great Bible study to go back and see how many times Jesus says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's God's creation purpose. From the very beginning, God made people, man, humankind. Genesis 1:27. so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So from the very beginning of creation, there is gender and sexual differentiation. Just say that word slow. Differentiation. What's God's purpose in creating both male and female? To show forth, to image forth, if you will, the image of God. Male, by itself, doesn't fully reflect the image of God. Female, by itself, doesn't fully reflect the image of God. Now, theologians have debated the meaning of this phrase, the image of God, for thousands of years. But at the very least... What being made in the image of God demonstrates is diversity in unity. Diversity in unity. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Diversity in unity. We just had a public profession of faith. Question one mentions God the Father. Question two mentions the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And question three mentions relying on the Holy Spirit. It's not an accident. Diversity in unity. And so, in the creation of human beings made in the image of God, male and female, He created them in order to demonstrate diversity in unity. It's as they're created together and as they're put together that diversity in unity of God is displayed. And it's notable that it's not Adam and Steve, it's not Eve and Joy. And it's certainly not Jody and a bridge. But male and female. I tell you, you can't make that stuff up. I mean, there's pictures online, the whole thing. It's bizarre. Male and female together. Image forth, God. So in answer to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife uh, for any cause? Jesus teaches us, that God's creation purpose for marriage is to reflect, to display, to demonstrate the diversity and unity of our triune God. And then Jesus tells us that God is up to something else. He has an intentional union in mind. Look at verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2, verse 24, reminding us that a man leaves his parents holds fast to his wife, or as the older versions have it, cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now that word cleave is a medical term. It's used to describe the healing together of what's been broken or cut. If you cut your arm and you get stitches, the stitches hold the two sides of the cut together so they can cleave together, rejoin as one. It's also used to describe the healing of broken bones. My family knows a little something about broken bones. And when broken bones are set, they cleave, they grow together, and where they were broken, they become stronger. And this is a reflection of creation. Remember, how did God create Eve? By taking one of Adam's ribs. He took, he broke away, he separated one of Adam's bones He made Eve and brought her to Adam. And we read Genesis 2.23, Then the man said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's he saying? He's saying that you came out of me for the purpose of coming back together that we might be one flesh. We were one flesh. We will become one flesh again. That's what marriage does. It cleaves us together, so we become bone and bone, flesh and flesh. It creates a one-flesh union. Now, this isn't something we can do on our own. We can't cleave to another relationally by ourselves. It takes a power outside of ourselves. So who does it? Well, Jesus tells us who does it. Verse 6, what God has joined together. So what does that mean for us today? Well, the first thing it means is you didn't get married by mistake. It wasn't an accident. Now, you may have had a strange and winding road to get married. Perhaps it even involved some sin on your part. Perhaps it was some kind of rush deal where afterwards you woke up and said, what have I done? Why do we do this? But if it's marriage, even if it happened in Vegas, it doesn't stay in Vegas. You get to bring it home. But it still doesn't happen by accident because God is at work in you and in your marriage. You may not have even been believers when you got married. You may not have had any idea this was part of God's purpose in your marriage, and yet it is the case. God is the one who joined you together. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees when they ask about divorce that you're missing God's purpose for marriage. When God puts male and female together in marriage, his purpose is that they would show forth God and his inseparable union with his people. Or put it differently, God's doing math. The world's math is one plus one equals two, but that's not God's math. God's math is one man and one woman become one flesh for one lifetime. That's God's math. That's what God's up to. So God seems to be answering the Pharisee's question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife with any cause, with a strong no. But it raises another question, because is Jesus trumping Moses with Moses? Is he using Genesis 1 and 2 to head off Deuteronomy 24? So that raises a follow-up question, and Jesus' answer to that follow-up question gives us Jesus' view of divorce. Gives us Jesus' view of divorce, verses 7 through 9. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, excuse me, and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now notice here, there's a subtle misunderstanding of Scripture. Perhaps maybe even a deliberate misinterpretation of Scripture by the Pharisees. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Hear what they're saying? If you're in a burdensome, bad, stale marriage, what you must do is divorce. Is that what Moses taught? I don't think so. Because first of all, Moses didn't command anything. Jesus immediately corrects that, verse 8, by saying Moses allowed you to divorce. Big difference between what's commanded and what's allowed. There's no command to get divorced. In fact, the prophet Malachi tells us God hates divorce, and yet divorce does sometimes happen. Believe it or not, many of the Pharisees have been divorced. Some of you have heard of Josephus, the famous Jewish historian of Jesus' day. Josephus was a divorced Pharisee, which leads Jesus to say that divorce is the result of hardened sinful hearts. In other words, divorce is Always the result of sin. Always. No exceptions. And that's why we read here, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. Now we have to realize something. That phrase, hardness of heart, is what we call a technical term. That means it has a precise meaning. And in the Bible, hardness of heart always refers to our relationship with God. Now we think this phrase, hardness of heart, means that one... Spouse's heart is hard towards the other. But biblically, it means that one spouse's heart is hard towards God. I've had people sit in my office and say, I know the Bible says, divorce is wrong, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's the kind of hardness of heart that God is talking about. And ultimately, listen to me carefully here, initiating divorce is the result of a fundamental rebellion against God. At the end of the day, that's why divorce happens. Which leads us to the third thing that Jesus says here, and that's there's really only one valid reason for divorce, and that's verse 9, sexual immorality. It's striking, the ESV translates that Greek word, porneia, you get pornography from it, but he translates it, sexual immorality. It's a different word that he uses later in that same verse, than adultery. Which means it includes adultery, but it also includes fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, any physical sexual intercourse outside the safe boundaries of marriage. All these things break the covenant bond of marriage. Now I'm going to use my words carefully here, which means once again, you have to listen carefully. The Westminster Confession of Faith also includes the category of abandonment based on a number of other texts. I don't have time to go through them all. But I believe abandonment is a subset of sexual immorality since it also breaks the covenant bonds of marriage. And there are two means of abandonment. There are the categories of willful desertion, and that's when somebody physically leaves uh, the relationship by moving away. And constructive desertion, that's when someone physically destroys the relationship, usually by way of violent physical abuse. And even in those difficult cases of immorality and abandonment, Jesus makes it clear that divorce is allowed but not commanded. And with or without divorce to break the covenant bonds of marriage is sin. Otherwise, God's math holds. One man and one woman become one flesh for one lifetime. Now, I would be an idiot if I didn't know how many people in the congregation were struggling in your marriages. I know that a number of you are talking about getting divorced, thinking about getting divorced, and secretly wanting to get divorced. I know that a number of you feel that you're in a burdensome, bad, or stale marriage. But you need to hear that God doesn't have you there by mistake. I know that sounds hard, but it's true. God joined you together. It didn't happen by accident. And furthermore, you need to hear that God knows what's going on. Let's go back to the illustration of broken bones. If you intentionally break bone from bone, it harms you, your spouse, and your family. If someone else breaks bone from bone, it still hurts. And still creates great pain for you and your family. Now, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, the Israelites are in great pain and suffering because they were enslaved. And they're crying out to God. They're begging God. And the very last verse of Exodus 2 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The fact of the matter is, as you struggle in your marriage, as you bear with relational difficulty, as you cry out to God, he knows. Your spouse with whom you struggle is not Jesus. They can't fix this. You have to turn to the real Jesus. You have to run to Christ, and if you do, you'll discover that in time that Jesus is a husband who's far more faithful than any husband could ever be, and he's a lover who will woo you to himself far more than any lover could do, and he will love you with a love that will not let you go, both now and for eternity. And so part of what we're called to do is stay in the struggle, and part of what we're called to do is to run to Jesus. Now, I'd also be an idiot, or a bigger idiot, if I didn't know how many divorced people were in this congregation, and I could count them off, and there's probably more than you think. Now, in the past, they've been the ones who've been the most supportive of me preaching on marriage and divorce, and I'm really, really hoping that's still true. However, the call of this text might mean, if that's referring to you, that you need to do business with God. If you had an unbiblical divorce caused by you, you need to go back to that place five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty-five years ago and repent. It's not the unpardonable sin. And so for you, the call of this text is to come before God and like all of our sins, acknowledge your sin and repent. You need to tell God, I divorced so-and-so for an unbiblical reason. I was wrong and that was sin. It wasn't just a mistake. It didn't just happen. I can't fix it. I can't go back. I live with the consequences, both good and bad, but it was sin against you. Please forgive me. Or did you think it was an accident that this passage came right after the one on forgiveness? Now, some of you have been on the other side of this. You've been on the receiving end of an unbiblical divorce. Perhaps you had to end the marriage due to immorality or abandonment because they'd already broken the covenant bond of marriage. And I need to say something to you. Even though the sign, the picture of God's inseparable union with you has been broken, that doesn't mean that the reality has been lost. God is still there. God is still in covenant with you. And God still loves you with a love that will not let you go. Back to our text. Because there's one more question. I believe it's an implied question. But in his answer, we discover Jesus' view of singleness. Starting at verse 10. The disciples said to him, As such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Disciples basically complain about Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and essentially come up with, that sounds hard, why bother? But Jesus doesn't answer them harshly. He takes their questions seriously. And in so doing, he wants them to know that he takes singleness seriously. And so he says, starting at verse 11, he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now Jesus is using the word eunuch here, but I don't think he's talking about physical eunuchs. That's not the point of the text. I think Jesus is actually talking about singleness. And some are single because of creation. They were made that way. They're hardwired to be single they don't require someone else to be satisfied with their life some are single providentially they'd like to be married but for whatever reason it just hasn't happened they desire a relationship but in God's providence that's not the case and then there are some who are single by calling God's called them to be single for the sake of the kingdom God is using them for his redemptive purposes Let me give you an example, it's a pretty dramatic example, but I'm thinking of the late John R. W. Stott, whom I consider to be one of the great pastor theologians of my lifetime. He was easily the most influential evangelical in the world. When he died a few years ago, memorial services were held for him on every continent, he was one of the principal authors of the Lausanne Covenant for World Evangelization in 1974, which sparked a movement that re energized the spread of Christianity throughout the world. In 2005, Time magazine ranked him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Not influential Christians, influential people in the world. He pastored All Souls Church in In London for over 30 years. At the same time, he authored more than 50 books, and I take about three more paragraphs to list all of his accomplishments. So how did he do it? Very easily he said, I'm single. God called me to do this, and I couldn't do this or not all of it if I was married. He remained celibate his entire life. He said the gift of singleness is more a vocation than an empowerment. Although to be sure, God is faithful in supporting those he calls. If God calls you to a single-minded devotion to advancing the kingdom of heaven, then the better part of obedience to Jesus would be not to get married. Perhaps you think you couldn't be married and do what God's called you to do. Then obedience to Jesus might very well mean remaining single. I realize that sounds odd to some of you, but the idea here is there is more to being single than not being married. That is a big part of what Jesus is teaching here. Whether by creation, providence, or redemption, there is a larger purpose to singleness, and it's the work of advancing the kingdom. After all, we would be fools. I guess you would join me in my idiocy if we forgot that Jesus himself was single. He knows what he's talking about. And he takes both singleness and marriage very seriously. He certainly takes it far more seriously than the Pharisees did. And he takes singleness and marriage far more seriously than the disciples did. And he certainly takes singleness and marriage far more seriously than our culture does today. Because ultimately, whether we're single or married whether we're married or we've suffered through a divorce. God is at work. And He's—excuse dis- he is displaying something to the world, and he's using you. He's using your singleness. He's using your marriages. He's pointing us to Jesus and our union with him. And he's using our marriages to point to Jesus. And he's using our singleness to point to Jesus. And in both cases, he wants the world to see that there is a love that will not let us go. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And once again, here in your word, we see Jesus the king, your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. So Lord, if there is anyone among us this day who comes here struggling with sin, struggling with relationships, struggling with their marriage, struggling with their past, Bring them the grace of your forgiveness and the mercy of your redemption. If need be, bring them to repentance. But for all of us, hold us with a love that will not let you go. We ask these things for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. The of God from the book of Romans. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We'll see you next week.